on the week after Reformation Sunday, which is next week when we'll be talking about uh, that, and uh, that will star Papa because you don't find a bigger fan of Martin Luther than, uh, than Papa Fred, for sure. Looking forward to that. I'm very grateful for uh, this opportunity, and um, let me pray for us, and then uh, I'm going to ask Greg about uh, the signs and wonders. What, oh, one quick get. One other reason that um, we're talking about uh, prophecy one more week was there were just a lot of good questions this week concerning that, and so we needed a little bit more of an explanation. Um, so that's one of the reasons that we thought, well, we invest one more week in this. Probably a, a good thing to do. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful. The live stream had to be restarted during Jerry's prayer, so it's going to cut straight to Greg, who is answering a question about how we are to understand signs and wonders in the Bible, and especially why they tend to occur only in three major clusters throughout biblical history. When it comes to the issue of like signs and wonders in general, um, we have to understand that it wasn't an everyday thing in the life of God's people. Um, there were specific periods where God was giving miraculous abilities to people, and he always did so with a very particular reason. Uh, so there's, there's three main periods that God did that throughout biblical history. Number one, um, Moses, obviously, um, you know, as the prophet who led God's people out of Israel or out of Egypt, um, God gave him amazing signs to do in the presence of Pharaoh and in the presence of the people of Israel. Uh, you think of Elijah and Elisha. Um, God did some amazing miracles through those prophets. And then the third time would be Jesus and the apostles. Um, and so we have to then say, okay, if it's really limited to those three periods, why were they given at all? Why, what was the significance of those three time periods? And the giving of supernatural signs and wonders and, you know, the ability like, you know, Moses to throw a, a staff down, it turns into a snake, to turn water into blood, um, you know, Elijah calling down fire on Mount Carmel, you know, the dead being raised, Jesus and all that he did and the apostles did. Why were they given that ability? And, and I think if you follow carefully with scripture, God was confirming the witness of specific individuals. Um, in the time of Moses and, you know, kind of into the time of Joshua, you still see some amazing things happening in Joshua's time. But Moses really, um, he was God's messenger. He gave the law. He was the leader. People had to listen to him. Go back to Elijah and Elisha. They were God's prophets in an ungodly nation. And what they, God gave these abilities in order to confirm that these men are his men and what they are saying are his words. And then especially you come to Jesus. He is the ultimate word of God. Um, and so he did all sorts of miracles um, that far exceeded anything Moses and Elijah and Elisha did um, because he is the true prophet who came into the world. Um, and so God confirms the, the authority and the witness um, of specific individuals. And, you know, the apostles obviously after Jesus because they were his appointed messengers to uh, teach and build up the church. And so God confirmed their authority and witness by signs and wonders as well. Outside of that, it really didn't happen. And so we have to allow, 
you know, not like speed everything up or mash it all together and say, well, this is just constantly happening at every phase. Actually, it wasn't. Yeah. Tom Pennington is a pastor who has a talk, uh, a message he gave years ago called, uh, Bib- I think it's a biblical case for cessationism or something like that. It's a very good message, an hour and five minutes long. It's really worth listening to. But in that talk, uh, he talks about some of these things in, in detail. And uh, he, you're exactly right, Greg, that, that it's not that miracles never happen outside of those three contexts, mm-hmm. but they are much less, they're much less common. And what you see is each of these clusters where these signs and wonders take place, if you look at them, they all last about 60 to 70 years. See, you've got Moses, the 40 years in the wilderness, and Joshua leading them into the promised land. There's all kinds of miracles, but that's only about a 60-year period max. And then you move on to Elijah and Elisha. Their two lifespans put side by side. We're talking 60 years-ish. And then when you move to Jesus and the apostles, the miracles don't start when, I mean, Jesus' birth is a miracle, but the signs and wonders ministry of Jesus doesn't start till what, 28 AD? And it ends by 100 AD. So we're talking again, it's about the same kind of 70-ish year period. So we, those, those are so remarkable and so memorable. Like you're saying, we tend to think that they're in every page of the Bible, but those are actually relatively rare and they come with new levels of redemptive history. So with Moses, the big redemptive history is validated by signs and wonders. The beginning of the more typical prophetic ministry of Elijah and Elisha, who become the precursor of the Isaiahs and Ezekiels and all of them, they are validated. Jeremiah doesn't do miracles that I know of. You know, the prophet Micah, we don't hear about him doing miracles. It's not common that even most prophets did miraculous works that we know of. And then you get to Jesus and the apostles. We would expect with the greatest work of redemptive history, the greatest exodus, what would we expect? Something that goes beyond what we had seen before. So the raising of the dead and these kinds of things become common in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. But then those, again, begin to fade as you reach the end of the New Testament. And we would not expect those to be maintained like that throughout all of church history. It's not what you would expect based on previous revelation. Good. Papa? I think it's uh, what you're saying is, this is these are not normative today. And they were during this period. And you're not talking about, I don't know if you said the exact number of years, but roughly a couple hundred years, period. So uh, does that mean that, that God is not working? No, not at all. It's just that he, I think the, the word that um, Pennington uses and, 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 and it stuck with me is to authenticate, to validate uh, these prophets, these individuals, the, the Messiah, for a particular period of time. I, I think about in, in the military, we used to, um, in, during the height of the Cold War and, 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 and such, we use uh, authentication procedures in the airplane. Mm. We'd be over the Pacific and we'd get a message, proceed to so and so, such and such a place. Um, that was not our destination. So we had to go into our top secret authentication tables, put in the codes, the date time group, and to validate that message. Otherwise, we pressed on wow. to our and, and, that, and so really, in essence, in, a, in another way, this was all simply saying, Moses is God's prophet. Elijah is God's prophet. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that Moses looked forward to, one from his people. Uh, so... Papa, nobody can give an illustration that cool. Yeah. That is, <laughs> back when we were over the Pacific getting our codes, that's when I was eight, I imagined I did stuff like that. That's not quite my story. But going with what you say there, Papa, that's a great illustration. I don't think I've heard that before. Um, think about this. With, with the, and again, I'm not trying to be critical to be mean. I'm trying to be clear with the truth. With the modern continuationist or charismatic movement, generally speaking, what, what I am just convinced you're seeing is we're seeing the redefining of the biblical gifts. 
to something that they actually are not. So for instance, the New Testament gifts of healing was a dead girl comes back to life. Someone in Jerry's condition, 40 years, almost 40 years uh, paralyzed, the guy in John, Jesus raises him to full health as if he had never had a problem born that way and whatever. These are things that are unmistakable, happen in an instant, not to be undone. Today's faith healers are always healing lower back pain. A little bit of a, of a joint issue in my, in my leg or something. It's like, th- th- these are things that you can't really validate. The, the, the psychosomatic healings where you get an adrenaline rush on the stage and they take away your walking stick and you, you walk a little bit and suddenly the person says, look, they're healed. Well, that is nothing like, why is it at these crusades, these faith healing crusades, uh, why is it that the people who are in Jerry's condition are, they have people who vet them in line. I've seen the videos. They talk to someone like Jerry and they say, you cannot come on the stage. Why don't you pray for your healing over on the side while we bring people with lower back pain, some joint pain, ligament issues like whatever it is, someone who can walk but kind of uses a cane, why are only those people healed on the stage? Because it's not the gift of New Testament healing. It is a false imitation of the New Testament gift. And similarly, uh, with, uh, if you take, um, and we'll talk about tongues later, but if you take the gift of tongues, in Acts, it is clearly speaking in another human language. Today, people who claim to speak in Acts are virtually never able to give evidence that they're speaking another known human language. When, when speech experts record so-called tongue speaking today, and they do research on that, what they find is there is no recognizable human language being spoken. In fact, there is no recognizable speech patterns in the pronunciation of what is being said. It is, it is, it is based on those studies. It is just free vocalization, just letting your mouth open and letting your tongue move. And so why is it such a different thing from the New Testament gift of tongues? You see, and then the other thing is prophecy, which is going to be our main focus for the next part of today. In the New Testament, prophets predicted a famine that is to come with perfect accuracy. Prophets were able to say, thus says the Holy Spirit when they spoke. Whereas Wayne Grudem, and I just want to say Wayne Grudem would not be okay with the faith healing movement, okay? I want to distinguish it. He would not be okay with the Benny Hens of the world, okay? But Grudem would say, you should never say when you're prophesying now, thus says the Lord. You should always say, these are Grudem's exact words, you should say, if you're prophesying today, you should say, I think the Holy Spirit might be leading me to say. Now, does that sound like a different thing than New Testament prophecy? My sermon text today, we have a New Testament prophet named Agabus begin his statement with, thus says the Holy Spirit. The very statement Grudem says you should never use when you're prophesying today. Sounds to me like we've taken three New Testament gifts, healings, signs and wonders, tongues, prophecy, and we've actually redefined them as something completely different. And we claim that they continue today, but they are in no way really connected to what we see in the New Testament. I think that's a very powerful, at least partly from an experiential argument, a very powerful argument uh, opposed to continuation. Well, I think it's important too that we, and I think we've said this, but I want to stress it again, like especially when it comes to the issue of healing, saying that the gift is no longer operative is not saying God doesn't heal. Yes. Okay. Like people had specific, like you remember um, maybe you've been there, maybe you've talked about this already in Acts, you know, it says God was doing extraordinary things by the hands of Paul so that if like a, a garment touched him, they could take it to a sick person or a dead person and they'd come back to life or be made well. Like that is a specific gift of healing given to an individual mm-hmm. that individuals are not gifted with that anymore, but God still heals and responds in answer to our prayers. So please don't hear us saying, don't ever pray for healing. If you know, someone's really sick or they have cancer. God still works like that. He can still work. We, we trust in his, pro, in his providence that if it's his will to heal, that he will. So we ask for it, but we trust if he doesn't, he's got another reason. But we still ask because God still does heal. So don't hear us saying that God doesn't heal just because the gift 
is no longer given to individuals. Great point, Greg. I totally agree with that. I think one of the advantages of living in this age is we can look back 2,000, 3,000, 3,500 years and, and find um, all sorts of examples to validate or verify uh, a position on things. Even John Piper, whose name we have uh, mentioned last week, wrote virtually all the great pastors and teachers of history that I admire and have fed me over the years belong to the group who believed that signs and wonders were only for the apostolic age. John Calvin, Martin Luther, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, Benjamin Warfield, and my own father. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's, he's not denying their testimony. Yeah. yeah. Mark, you want to talk about the Old Testament? Yes. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1. And I'm just going to go really quick here, so just, just follow along. I'm just going to use Jeremiah as a test case of how the Old Testament speaks of prophecy. As you are turning there, let me read you something from a guy who believes the gifts continue, because I think this admission from him is powerful for the case we're trying to make. Okay, this is from a guy named Andrew Wilson, who believes prophecy in tongues continue today. I have no doubt he's a believer, but we would disagree on this issue. Here's what Andrew Wilson, a continuationist or a charismatic, believes. Just listen carefully. Number one. Is three, four points. Number one, Andrew Wilson admits, number one, uh, if the, he says if the first three points are true, the fourth one has to be true as well. Okay, that's what he's saying. Number one, prophesying in the Old Testament was infallible divine revelation. I think that's the easy one right there. Old Testament prophecy is infallible. Number two, there is no indication of a change between the Old and New Testament on the point of prophecy. In other words, if it was infallible in the Old, what would it be in the New? Infallible. Infallible as well. Uh, and we, he said, therefore, we should assume that prophesying in the New Testament is also infallible. So number three, Paul describes the church as being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets in Ephesians 2.20. Greg talked about that last Sunday, which indicates that New Testament prophecy is not just infallible, but also foundational for the church. Now, he says, if those three points are true, which I think they are, then he says, as a continuation, he admits number four has to be true. Here's number four. Therefore, the Pauline exhortations to pursue spiritual gifts, especially prophesy, prophecy, the command to pursue prophecy, should be considered as unique to the first century and no longer binding on the church today. Mm. Now, that's coming from a guy who thinks they do continue. But I agree perfectly with those four points. I, I do think that those things are true. So to defend the idea that Old Testament prophecy is infallible, and that if you make a mistake, you are not a erring prophet, you are a false prophet. Let's look at Jeremiah real fast. Verse 4 of Jeremiah 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Verse 7. The Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth. To all whom, you send, uh, for, to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. His words are God's words. Verse 9, then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And for the sake of time, I'm gonna, I probably won't go far on this, but I've got a whole bunch of verses. Look, look at chapter 5 real quick. I, Jeremiah 5, 12, and 13, this is about false prophets. They have spoken falsely of the Lord, 5, 12. 
and have said, he will do nothing, no disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind, the word is not in them, thus shall it be done to them. And what you'll see throughout Jeremiah is the true prophet is saying the very things, the very words of God. And the false prophet is considered to be lying about God. And there's no option for a fallible, true prophet, which is what the whole argument of the continuation view hinges on. And I, I, I've got a whole list of verses, but for the sake of time, I won't go through all that. Yeah, it'd be great to put those on the group me to, yeah. to take a further look. Greg, any more thoughts on that? I'm waiting for the next question. Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, can, I want to make one point about prophets. I, I did a little word search this morning and, and um, prophet, just prophet. I didn't look at prophets or prophetesses. Uh, appears 233, 233 times in the Bible. Uh, 66 of those times are in the New, Te New Testament, but the majority of those refer to Old Testament prophecies like the Gospels and that type thing. That's basically what the word search produced. Yeah, good. Stay tuned for uh, uh, prophecy part two in the sermon today, right, Mark? Mm -hmm. And um, on that note, could you tell us how you became convinced? Those because you had a number of passages here that I think are going to help all T of us. Turn to the back of your Bible to First John four, and th this will take me a moment to try to explain this because it involves several passages. I hope it makes sense to you. Um, just to remind everybody what the debate is, Grudem, who wrote the Bible Doctrine book, we're disagreeing with him on this chapter, almost entirely, which is rare with Grudem. We usually agree with him, but we disagree with him entirely on this chapter, pretty much, because he is arguing that prophecy continues today, but that it is fallible in the words that are spoken by the prophet. And so he, th th for me, one of the biggest things that made Grudem's position seem credible at first was repeatedly in the New Testament. We are told to evaluate prophecies. And Grudem says, why do you evaluate a prophet? Because you're trying to figure out what is mixed with truth and error in what they say. And I fundamentally don't think that's right because of these, these verses and how they go together. So 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh uh, is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, do you see what's happening here? We are evaluating claims that a prophet is speaking. And what are we evaluating? We're not evaluating error in a true prophet. What are we, what are we looking for? We're looking for the spirit of a true prophet from the spirit of Jesus, spirit of the Holy Spirit, or the spirit they're speaking from is the spirit of Antichrist, a false spirit. So the testing here is either a true prophet or a false prophet, and the word test in this verse is the same word Paul will use in his letters when he's evaluating prophecies, like in 1 Thessalonians 5. Really good. I think the reason this is so important is we are, we have entered, we are not entering, we have entered a time of... Uh, disarray as far as what we hear as truth, uh, not only from uh, other uh, 
denominational groups or religious groups, but also from the media and the government and so on. And, and we have to be ready to test the spirits to see what we hear is, is true. We, we, we're all accountable, n not so much for what we hear, but what we do with what we hear. What did you tell me that Bridges said, don't believe everything you think, Jerry? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, That's for sure. I mean, don't believe everything you think. And, and, and you can think a lot of things about what you hear. So test the spirits. Yeah, don't listen to yourself. Preach to yourself. That's Go right. back to the Word. Whatever you do, don't listen to yourself. Good night. That is a disaster for any of us. Mark, you're... Uh, we, what else convinced you? You're in Thessalonians. Yeah, turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 to your left. Will you go in there, Greg? Yeah, that's exactly right. Why, why don't you go ahead and pick up there? Um, yeah, pick, uh, I do want to pick up on what you were um, saying First John. You see a, a theme um, in, in the New Testament on carefully evaluating what people say, mm. carefully evaluating teaching especially. Um, we looked at it in 1 John here um, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, Paul's getting to the end of uh, the chapter. Let's begin reading just in verse 16 to kind of pick up in the flow of thought. We're going to focus on verses 19 through 22, though. He says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now, this matters, too, because a charge that has been leveled that, that when I was wrestling through this, especially in college, you know, you're a new believer, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be unfaithful to the Lord, you don't want to quench the Spirit, uh, anything like that, and it's like, well, um, if you don't believe in prophecy in tongues, you're quenching the Spirit. You know, that's a serious charge. You don't want the Spirit to work, you're quenching the Spirit, um, and all of that. Well, if we understand prophecy rightly, um, as it was working in the New Testament, period, um, if prophecy was done, you know, accepted and evaluated rightly, then it, you're not quenching the Spirit. You're receiving what the Spirit's given. Um, but notice what he says. He says, don't despise prophecies. You know, and again, thinking about the difference between prophecies and tongues, um, prophecy pops up all over the place. Tongues does not. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I think prophecy was an ongoing gift in the church. But what does he tell us to do? Verse 21, test everything. Just because someone claims to be a prophet does not mean you automatically accept what they say. Um, we see this somewhat uh, kind of by analogy in our, you know, and I'm, again, I'm not trying to like pick a fight on this, but in the evangelical celebrity culture that we have today, just because somebody has a big platform and other people have said, hey, you know, you need to listen to them. We don't ever question what they say because they've been platformed. When we have lost the ability in the church, I think North Avenue, I think we're I think we, we've managed to set ourselves apart from that, but we still need to be aware. Um, the, the majority of the church has lost the ability to evaluate teaching. They don't test it. If it's people um, that have been platformed, they just accept it, whatever it is, and whatever they say, they just bring it on in and they run with it. And Greg, can I just on yeah. that point, because Greg mentioned last Sunday, I think it was, you said when you were earlier in your faith, Piper made such a huge imprint on mm -hmm. you that it was hard for you to question anything he taught. And I had the exact same thing with Piper myself for yeah. years. I, because I had been so impacted by his teaching, I still he's still one of the biggest impacts in my life of the theology, but I, it, it was so long for me to actually disagree with him on anything. And now I disagree with him on all kinds of stuff. But, but like, maybe a sign that I'm following someone too closely as platforms is that I never disagree with anything right. they say. If I never disagree with this one pastor, 
pastor, I'm probably following that pastor too closely, right? So, have I been blinded by some particular person or personality? Yeah, and I mean, this is something we all have to be aware of because we're all prone to it. We, we, we have people who influence us. Um, we gain, they gain our respect. They gain our love, our appreciation because of how they've brought the Word of God to us and God has used them. But we still have to test everything according to Scripture. And, you know, the more you trust somebody, the more you know somebody. Um, you, you know, you just get a sense when they're being faithful and when they say something off, you're like, wait a minute, what was that? Um, and you can go, you know, you just, you've got to develop this, this discernment. And I think the other thing too, with, with prophecy, if we're thinking also in terms of, um, you know, what Paul talks about in first Corinthians 14, um, it's what, when a prophet spoke, it wasn't, let's just look at the prophecy in and of itself as true or false is, does it line up with what the apostles are teaching? Mm -hmm. So it, it had to be tested against the apostolic teaching. Um, and so I think God gave an extremely um, sensitive gift of wisdom to the church to be able to, to discern when new revelation was lining up with what the apostles were teaching and when it wasn't. And just with what you're saying, that word here in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, that word test, and I've got it right here, it's the word dokamazo in Greek. That's the same word used in 1 John 4, test the spirits to see whether it's a false prophet or a true prophet. We're not distinguishing fallible prophets. We're distinguishing true from false prophets, which again, that goes against Grudem's reading on this, on this passage as yeah, well. absolutely. Seems a little easier too. I mean, right? We're, Greg, aren't we just, we're trying to say the Bereans were kind of the poster children for this, right? Oh, absolutely. They were, they were what were... Looking they evaluated like everything in light of what Scripture taught. Yes, sir. And then... And that, that's not being arrogant, by the way. Like, even, you know, I, the, the trust that, that our church has in the leadership of this church is one of the most encouraging things, and it's hard to even put into words how encouraging it is, but I do hope, while when I'm teaching, when Mark, Jerry, Fred, Scott, um, whatever, I do pray that you're thinking through what we're saying in light of Scripture. We are not perfect. Um, I mean, I'm going to do everything I can to be as rigorously faithful to this book as I can be, but that doesn't mean I'll 100% of the time get it right. None of us oh, yeah. do. And so, you know, even with us, you know, we're not above getting something wrong. Now, we're not up here as prophets. We're up here as teachers and preachers, so there is a difference. But you still don't ever turn off your discernment radar. You can't do that. This, you know, going ahead to the Reformation, this was one of the reasons why Luther and others were so desperate to get the Bible translated into the common language. Because the people, the, the, the priests would do it all in Latin. The people had no idea what was being said. And they said, no, you need to be able to read this and make sure what you're hearing is what this is saying. That's one of the major reasons we do Bible translations is so that we can engage the Word of God ourselves and hold our teachers accountable. There's no accident, by the way, that the, that the, the Greek New Testament was first on the printing press, what year, 1516? The Erasmus Greek New Testament, right around there? Listen to this. The Greek New Testament, for the first time in history, human history, hits the printing press around 1515, 1516. The Reformation happens in 1517. That is not an accident. 
It was the first time they had the Bible in the original. And Luther was converted reading the Greek New Testament, which was not easily accessible at the time. Because the, the Catholic Church said, no, you can only read it. Well, first of all, no one can really read it. And it has to be done in Latin, in the Latin Vulgate. So we're just going to kind of read this thing in Latin from, the, from up in our pulpit. And you can't have your own copy of the Bible. And first of all, the copies were priceless then because they were handwritten. But to have a Greek New Testament that could be pr printed by the tens of thousands had never happened in human history till about two years, year and a half before the Reformation. It was not Luther that started the Reformation. It was the Greek New Testament that started the Protestant Reformation. That's good. Greg, you reminded me when you were saying the, the admitting that we're definitely not going to be, didn't, what's MacArthur's quote? Like he might be wrong. Did he say like, I might be wrong on, I can't remember what. Yeah, MacArthur said, do I have flaws in my doctrine? He said, yes, I do. John MacArthur, he said, do I have flaws in my doctrine? Yes, I do. If I knew where they were, I'd fix them. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where we all are, right? That's 100%. Nobody in this room has no flaws in their doctrine. We all have flaws. Some of them might be more serious than others, but it is all up to a life of study of God's word and being critiqued and humble enough to receive criticism and to adapt and change our views over time. I mean, I, I, I believe things that I, be, I hope are more faithful now than when our church started almost six years ago. That, that, that things have changed. I feel more solid on certain things. I've changed my mind on some secondary issues, and, and I hope for the better. I hope towards what the Bible really teaches. Good. Papa, you are really well. Go ahead. And say no, what you tell me. Say, what, but you are really uh, did a uh, very heartwarming this week when you were talking about the humility that we have to have. I love your heart on this. Could you tell us about that? But not, and then go to whatever you were thinking. Um, you know. The humility is when you, I was reading today, um, actually two different places. I, I was uh, reading Galatians because there's a quote uh, that Luther makes about cess, uh, cessationism in, uh, in his commentary on Galatians. And then I was reading Calvin on the same thing. And they were talking about, the, uh, Calvin was talking about reading Chrysostom and Augustine. So we have these we have these ancient voices speaking the same theology and doctrine that we're espousing up here. So it's a, it, we're just blessed to be sitting here in the 21st century and being able to go back and do that. And to me, it's absolutely breathtakingly humble. I, this, is, this is not Papa Fred's words. These are great icons of the faith and, and the Bible. And also... Um, you know, in spite of uh, Arminianism and the fact that much of this Pentecostal stuff came out of the, uh, the Wesleyan Wesley. movement, Wesley was converted by the reading of Luther's introduction to Romans. Not, not Romans itself, but Luther's introduction to Romans. The scales fell from his eyes and his heart was warmed. And you're talking about 400 years ago probably. Uh, just amazing. How, uh, that, that, to me, that's humbling. I, I take no credit for that except being the beneficiary downstream. Yeah, and we need to be humble in the way we want to be confident in what we believe and what we teach, but yet mixed with a great humility to say there are going to be areas that, that we're wrong. Amen. On depravity. And on, so the, the big question that we've, we, a few people have asked about is saying, okay, if we are saying that, uh, to, to whichever degree you guys are persuaded of what we're trying to argue for, if we, if we agree that prophecy and tongues are not something that is happening today, then what about the supernatural guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives today? If we don't believe it's coming through prophecy, if we don't think it's coming through tongues or signs and wonders, then does the Spirit just not play a part in our role, a role in our life? Does the Spirit just absent? Are we just, you know, as people sometimes mockingly say, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures? 
years, right? We get rid of the Holy Spirit, we replace it with the Bible, Him with the Bible, but that's not what we're doing. Uh, we believe that the Spirit works powerfully through God's Word. He converts through the Word. He glorifies the Son through the Word. He brings to mind all that Jesus said to the apostles so they could put it in the inscripturated Word. So the Spirit primarily works through the Word. It's almost like, uh, this, Fred will understand this, I guess, but planes flying in tandem, right? When they're flying together, the, the, oh, tandem, yeah, in I'm tandem not, formation, yeah. the one in the front, wherever he goes, the one behind will go as well. And so the, the, the Spirit follows and blesses the Word of God. Wherever the Word of God goes, the Spirit of God goes. And the Spirit converts through the Word. The Spirit sanctifies through the Word. The Spirit opens our eyes to the beauty of Jesus through the Word. The Spirit and the Word are together in this amazing way because the Spirit works through the Word. And so we, we are in no way for a second minimizing the crucial role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need the Spirit to make it through any day of our week, and we must rely on the Holy Spirit uh, as the regenerating and uh, grace of God in our lives. How about the question <laughs> on if you have impressions or, you know, there's questions like that this week. Greg or Mark? Um, well, I know you, are you going to be talking about this somewhat in your sermon? No. I don't, you're not. Okay. Um, so one of the things we have to do, again, we, we come to this issue, we've got a lot of baggage already in our heads in terms of how God leads, God speaks, God works, whatever. Um, one of the most helpful things is when we, we see stuff in scripture talking, you know, the spirit leading or whatever, we need to, to read it in context to understand how is he leading in this? Like, what does that leading actually look like? So one example, turn to Romans chapter 8. Um, this is a, a huge passage on, on fighting sin. Uh, you know, we've talked about 12 and 13. John Owen wrote a whole, what, 100, how many pages? 87. Just 87 pages on 12 and 13. Um, but we, the, again, we need to read in context. Um, Yes, read individual verses or a couple of verses that are together, but don't isolate them from what's around them because oftentimes that's where you get a fuller picture of what's going on. So let's look at verse 14 and then we'll go back to 12 and 13, okay? And there's a reason why we're doing this. 14 says, for all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And say, so, okay, if you're a, you're a true child of God if you're led by the Spirit of God. And then we just stop. So, oh, well, what does that mean to be led? I don't know. Am I led? Am I not led? What's that look like? What's it feel like? Notice what verse 14 begins with. It begins with the word for, meaning that 14 is the ground on which 12 and 13 is built. Okay, that's huge. Pay attention. One of the reasons, I'm not going to go off on this long, why you need a more literal translation because it gets that kind of stuff so you can see structure and grammar. So four, so what, what is being built on being led by the Spirit of God? Okay, because it's like, this is how you're going to know you're led by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what does it look like for a person to be led by the Spirit of God? That person is fighting and killing his sin by the Spirit. Yes. You see, that's how that works. So in this case, being led by the Spirit is, is, is manifested in a very specific way, fighting sin and killing sin. Okay, so context decides it. I think Galatians chapter 5, we're going to go there? Yeah, we can go there. Yeah, let's go to And that simply authenticates that you're a son of God. Right, yes. If you're fighting that sin. Yeah, so, you know, if you hate your sin, thank you, that we need it. If you hate your sin, 
and you're fighting it, even though imperfectly and you still fail, you still sin, but you're, you're, you're determined to not stop in this battle, guess what? That is a sign you belong yes. to God. And while we're turning to Galatians 5, let me just say, in the book of Acts, you may have noticed this over the last year, over and over and over again, they were filled with the Spirit and continued to speak the Word with all boldness. Boldness in evangelism is a sign of the Spirit filling you. It's not these other things. It's, it's, if, if you are able to humbly and boldly bring Jesus up in, an, in, in what might be an awkward moment in a conversation, that is a sign of the Spirit at work. Boldness in evangelism is a continuous sign of the Spirit in the book of Acts. Yeah, and can I, before we read Galatians 5, I want to mention that again because, you know, we've all had moments where you, you know, this has happened to me when I've been preaching. It's happened when I've been just having conversations with people, sometimes teaching in class. We've all had it where you're having a conversation with someone about the truth and like, it's just like somehow you are able to speak it in a way you never could. And yeah. you even try to relate it to other people. And you're like, I couldn't get it the way I said it in that conversation right now if my life depended on it. Why? Like you were saying, God gives supernatural boldness and clarity to make his word clear. That's being filled Absolutely. with the spirit. Um, so you, you'll, God gives that as he sees fit at the right moments. Um, but it's amazing when it happens. Um, so Galatians chapter 5. This, this is a, a passage here, verses uh, 16 through 25, that is just full of talking about the Spirit and His work. And again, let's think through this together in context. And guys, please jump in um, on this. He says, but I say, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So that's one, walk by the Spirit. We want to say, okay, what does that mean? Uh, verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are, next one, led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, he goes on to list all those. Um, verse uh, 21, you know, I warn you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but another phrase, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. Look again at verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, another phrase, and then let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so we have to look at these phrases related to the Spirit. How are, you know, where, where is it talking about stuff that's our responsibility? Where is it talking about what the Spirit of God is doing? Um, and it, it, you have to be, you know, fruit of the Spirit is patience. We have to be patient with a passage and say, okay, I'm not going to rush this. I'm going to slow down. And I mean, obviously, we're going to be rushing because we're almost out of time. But you get the <laughs> point of what I'm saying here. When you have time to study this on your own, slow down. Don't rush. Get an, If you have a, a margins in your Bible, write notes, write questions. If you've got a notebook, write questions. Um, and then come back to this and linger. And just, I know we're, we're low on time, but uh, jumping off from that, he doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is tongues, interpretation, prophecy, signs and wonders, miracles, raising the dead. Mm. In fact, interestingly enough, all the fruit of the Spirit are character attributes. That you, you could do no miracles ever and have all the fruit of the Spirit. So don't, don't equate supernatural miracles with the only thing the Holy Spirit does. That, that doesn't make, that's not a biblical notion of the Holy Spirit. But, but how about this? In Matthew 7, don't, don't turn there, you know this verse. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name? Do we not do mighty works in your name? Those are all the signs and wonders, gifts, prophesying, miracles, healing, all that. Do we not do all that? By the way, Judas did all that. Matthew 10 says so. And then Jesus says, I will look at you and I will say, depart from me, workers of lawlessness, I never, I never knew, knew you. you. 
The miraculous signs don't even indicate that you are a Christian. Judas did them. In Matthew 10, Judas healed the sick by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he was not regenerate. He was not a Christian. So Jesus explicitly says, you can do all the signs and wonders you see anyone do on TV supposedly, and even if it were from the Spirit, if your heart is still in love with the lawless deeds, he said, I never knew you. We have this notion that the sign of the Spirit is the supernatural, crazy-looking stuff, but really the sign of the Spirit is a heart submissive to God's commands. That's the sign of the Spirit. That's the fruit of the Spirit, which is much less glamorous in many ways, but yet it's much more like Jesus in terms of the character of Christ being imprinted on our hearts. And can I, I, don't, I don't think we have time, but let me read a quote real quick from Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon said this about impressions. We're not denying the, the Spirit uh, doesn't, we, we believe He illuminates His Word, His revealed Word. doesn't reveal fresh words, but He illuminates His revealed Word. But Spurgeon says this about living by impressions of the Spirit, what, what, what you think are impressions. Quote, To live by impressions is oftentimes to live the life of a fool and even to fall into downright rebellion against the revealed Word of God. The man who was guided by impressions was unstable as water. Impressions are unreliable guides. He goes on, it is a dangerous thing for us to make the whims of our brain instead of the clear precepts of God the guide of our moral actions. Hold fast to the Word of God and nothing else. Whoever he shall be that shall guide you, uh, otherwise, close your ears to him. Uh, he said, I need scarcely warn any brother here against falling into the delusion that we may have the Spirit so as to become inspired. We are not the passive communicators of what is infallible. Mm. I just think that is a very wise way of speaking. Mm. That, is, that is great. So fantastic. I'm really thankful we took a, another week on prophecy. Greg, would you um, close us and, and also pray for just the... Uh, um, what, a, what a service to look forward to here in a second. Yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word and how you guide us and instruct us and lead us through it. Um, God, thank you for another week to talk about prophecy. Lord, there is still more we could say. I'm sure there are questions that could be asked and want to be asked. And Lord, I pray for fruitful um, discussions, um, Lord, that will come from, from this time. Uh, Lord, be with us in that. Um, God, thank you. Lord, what we get to to do today as a church in welcoming new members and in baptizing a large number of people, what a blessing. Um, God, thank you, Lord, for how you are at work in this church and through this church. And Lord, that we can celebrate the faith and the obedience, Lord, of of a number of people today. Lord, we are so excited for that. And uh, Lord, we just pray that our hearts would be encouraged and our our minds um, instructed, Lord, as we we sing and we pray and, and we see the reality of the gospel in baptism um, and then we hear about it in the message. So, Lord, we just uh, pray that you would be uh, honored and exalted and lifted up and that we'd all be drawn closer to you through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And before we leave out, out here, if you, have a, if you want to read further on this, a short, accessible, easy-to-understand book, Thomas Schreiner, Tom Schreiner has written a book called Spiritual Gifts, What They Are and Why They Matter. And it is a really, I think, balanced biblical case for the cessationist view. And he goes through all the gifts of the Spirit, including the non-miraculous uh, signs. Good. Come back next week. Five solids and the Reformation.